Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16. So we continue our study through this book. Matthew 16. We'll look today at verses 1 to 12. In case you haven't noticed, we live in a deeply divided nation. On the one side are conservative Republicans, on the other are liberal Democrats. And never shall the two meet. No matter what the issue, they will disagree. If for no other reason, simply because they take the other position. Jesus lived in such a world. There were two prevailing groups in Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were very conservative, holding on to the hope of a Messiah coming from God, believing in things supernatural and devoted to God's word, the Torah. But the Sadducees were liberal, seeing the Messiah as more of an ideal than a person, And rejecting supernatural things, they looked for the coming of God's kingdom in a negotiated political deal with the Romans. Not surprisingly, we seldom find these two groups in the same page in the Bible, in the same account in the Bible. They're mentioned together only eight times in the New Testament, mostly in Matthew. Three of those speak of the ill will between the two groups. And four of the other five are in this little text of 12 verses. (laughs) Make no mistake, Jesus is operating in a hostile environment. Not just because of the Roman occupiers, but because both major parties of the Jews, though they agree about nothing else, hated Jesus. That's the context of our study this morning. Let me read it. Matthew 16, the first 12 verses. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast or leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, oh, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus said, you have a little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you not, do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees 
and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is a really interesting text. I struggled mightily with this text. It's actually two pieces, but it's both about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're kind of tied together, and yet, uh, what are you going to say about it? I've discerned three things that we ought to learn from this, so I've got three points. The first is this. Don't put God on trial. Do not put God on trial. You know, we tend to have a lot of sympathy for a person who seems to just need more evidence in order to believe in Jesus. And most of us would go out of our way and do whatever it takes to try to provide more evidence that a person might see and believe the truth about Jesus. But this lack of evidence is not the Pharisees and Sadducees' problem. They had seen lots of evidence already. They had seen Jesus cleanse a leper. They had seen him heal the centurion's servant from a distance. They had seen him raise up Peter's sick mother-in-law and many others who came to her house. They had seen him still the wind and the waves of the storm and deliver a demon-possessed man living among the tombs. He had healed a paralyzed man. He had raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He had restored a woman who weak from 12 years of hemorrhaging. He gave sight to two blind men. He restored both hearing and speech to a deaf mute. He delivered a demoniac who was both blind and mute. And more recently, he fed thousands of people with a little boy's lunch. They were not lacking in evidence. They just refused to believe what they saw. They wanted Jesus to perform again, to do another magic trick, if you will. They wanted supernatural acts performed on command for their pleasure. <laughs> Worse than that, they came to put Jesus on trial. The word translated test in verse 1 means, it's from my lexicon, it means to try to trap, to attempt to catch someone in a mistake. Make no mistake, their motives were evil. Jesus identified them as part of, quote, a wicked and adulterous generation that looks for a sign. And so Jesus refused to comply with their demand. He doesn't produce such signs. He ministers to the real needs of hurting people in supernatural ways sometimes, but he does not do circus tricks for the entertainment of those who hate him. He refused any sign except, that is, for the sign of the prophet Jonah, who spent three days in a fish's belly. Jesus treated what happened to Jonah as a foreshadowing of his own resurrection. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees could not have understood that when he talked about Jonah, for it only made sense after Jesus rose from the dead. It was kind of like that sign that God gave to Ahaz in the Old Testament in Isaiah 7. Ahaz didn't believe, so God did not, uh, did not show him any miraculous sign that he wanted like he, he might have wanted. Instead, God gave him a promise, a virgin will conceive, which meant nothing to Ahaz, but was a powerful evidence one day when a virgin conceived and bore a son named Jesus. In a similar way, when Jesus was killed on the cross, died on the cross, the Pharisees and Sadducees remembered this prediction and they said, you better post a guard at his tomb. Hmm. 
kind of sign, but not what they were looking for. But you see, the problem was not a lack of evidence. The problem was their refusal to examine the evidence they had. The problem was that even in the face of overwhelming facts, they found a way to suppress the truth and continue in their unbelief. And you? Are you sitting smugly indifferent before God saying, prove it? If so, the Bible would say to you, yes. Your problem is not lack of evidence, but the refusal to go where it leads you. Don't think you can avoid your responsibility to believe by putting God on trial. Oh, but this truth applies to Christians, too. Have you noticed how demanding we can get toward God? When we face trouble or hardship, we want relief. And there are lots of passages in the scripture where God promises us care and comfort and relief. We have every reason to ask him to pray fervently for relief. But don't put God on trial. We don't know his will in a specific situation. We don't know how he is working everything together for our good. We only see our perspective. We only feel our pain. But that does not give us a right to demand that he perform for us. We cannot say, as I've actually heard people say, it's my turn to see a miracle. No, there are no turns being taken. God does as he pleases. He does not owe anyone a miracle ever. Who knows, he may be trying our faith. That's his right. But we do not have the right to put him on trial. Lest we join the ranks of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who he calls a wicked generation. So without signs and wonders, then how would we know God's will? Well, that brings us to the second point I want us to see in this text. Learn to think like God thinks. Learn to think like God thinks. This is a little bit obscure, but let me just try to describe a little bit. Some of us have been married a really long time. And you who are younger may have noticed that there are some quirky things that old married people do. We finish one another's sentences. Have you noticed that? We say the same thing at the same time. You ever wonder why that is? We weren't born that way. We're not twins. But after years of knowing one another, we tend to think alike. Similarly, God calls us to know him so well that we think like him. Now, how do we do that? Well, we read and listen to his word. We hide it in our heart. We meditate on it. And as we do so, it changes the way we think. It changes what we like. It changes what we believe. It changes our perspective. 
on everything. In short, we learn to think like God thinks. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus gives his version of an old weather rule of thumb. This has been around for centuries. You've probably heard it. The version we hear goes like this. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning. Where'd that come from? Did someone just make that up? No, actually, it has scientific truth to back it up. I, I looked to see where it came from, and I ran into uh, some interesting things. An article on Scientific American defending the statement, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and then on NOAA's Earth Systems Research Laboratory site, I read this. This old saying actually has scientific explanation. It relates to moving high and low surface pressure weather systems. I could explain it a little easier than that, but that's how they explain it. So how did people way back in Jesus' time know these things? Red sky at night. Sailors delight. Red sky in morning. Sailors take warning. How did they know that? Well, we live with the weather, you know. We can't help but live with the weather. We can't help but notice how the weather works. We can't help but think about it. And after we think about it and look at it every day after day after day for our whole lives, we see patterns and we draw conclusions. And we actually, even with not any scientific knowledge, we begin to be able to predict kind of certain things happen at certain times. You might say we've learned to think like the weather thinks. Suppose you spend a lot of time in God's word. Regularly hearing and thinking God's thoughts. After a while, we would rarely be surprised by what God did. For we know him well. We would be thinking the way he thinks. Of course, that's what he's going to do. In fact, there's a concrete example of this. Back in Psalm 32, that's a great psalm. You know that psalm. There the Lord promises to instruct and guide us. So we naturally expect, all right, God's going to write some messages in the sky. He's going to give me a sign so I'll know what he wants me to do. But the very next verse is, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Don't be like a dumb beast who has to be led around by a bit and bridle. Instead, because we have understanding, because we have learned to think like God thinks, we willingly walk in the Lord's ways, doing his will. In the same way, verse 3 of our text, in verse 3 of our text, the Lord says, we ought to be able to interpret the signs of the times. That is, we ought to be able to recognize that when Jesus demonstrates power over the creation and, and calms the wind and the storm, and, and, and over evil and casts out demons. He's not a magician. He's the Lord. And when Jesus does miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom has begun. How would we ever gain such understanding? How would we come to recognize the times we live in and what it means? By spending time in God's word 
and walking in his ways and thus, thus learning to think like God thinks. Oh, we all want a list of rules. We all want a checklist or whatever. We all want a sign to tell us what to believe and we all want a, 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 a something supernatural, but God calls us into fellowship with him because he intends to conform us to himself until we think like he thinks. Then we'll be able to explain the times we live in, just like we can explain what the weather means. Finally, there's a third point here. Guard against creeping sin. Guard against creeping sin. No, I did not say creepy sin, though you ought to guard against that too. I said creeping, as in sneaking in the back door undetected sin. Jesus uses the term leaven or yeast. When you're making bread, you put yeast in the dough. And what does it do? You don't see it doing anything except it quietly permeates the whole loaf until it all begins to react and rise. In that sense, leaven or yeast is a good metaphor to describe sin because sin quietly creeps through the hole. It quietly permeates our lives and changes us, in this case, for the worse. So Jesus told his disciples to guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Or we might say, guard against creeping sin. Actually, it seemed Jesus would never be able to make this point to his disciples, because whenever he said the word yeast, they thought, oh, no, we forgot to bring bread. And they got to stewing about, what are we going to do with bread? We're in a boat going to another place. We have no bread. Oh, we forgot lunch. And Jesus finally says, what are you doing? What are you thinking about? Do you not remember when I just fed 5,000 people? Do you not remember when we just read, fed 4,000 people? Do you not remember how many basketfuls of bread we had left over? Why are you worried about bread? I'm not talking about bread. There's a little side point there. Don't forget what God's done. Makes you look like an idiot. Jesus' main point in this last section is the exhortation to guard against creeping sin, the insidious enemies of our faith. So what was Jesus talking about? The leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the, the teaching, the sin-plagued teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What was he talking about? Well, there are a lot of different opinions. I was reading Jim Boyce's commentary on this last night. And he, he goes through a whole list of people that I hadn't read all these people. But he said, D.A. Carson thought it's their attitude of unbelief toward divine revelation. That's what he was talking about. Craig Keener thinks it was their cynicism. R.T. France thought it was their attitude that demanded a sign. The Gospel of Luke seems to say about the Pharisees that the, the, the sin was hypocrisy. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And there's truth in all of those things. 
But in reality, the sin of the Pharisees was actually a bit different than the sin of the Sadducees. The Pharisees, while holding up the scriptures in high esteem, they were actually legalists. Jesus came with a gospel of pure grace and that offended them. They would not have it. They believed you earned it. You earned it by keeping the laws, especially the Sabbath laws and the kosher laws. They were legalists. The Sadducees were just the opposite. They didn't add thing works to God's word. They took away from God's word. They dismissed the miracles. They dismissed the supernatural things. Theirs was a secular religion. And folks, we still have both these errors in the church. We have the legalists who think that God accepts them because they're good enough. And we have people who live as if this, uh, as if this world and what it offers is all there is. And I have only my own standards and I'm happy in, in doing that. I don't need some religion. Kim Keller, Kim, Tim Keller talks this way often. There's one little quote. He says, the gospel is neither religion nor irreligion. It is something else altogether. Religion makes law and moral obedience a means of salvation. While irreligion makes the individual a law to himself or herself. The gospel, however, is that Jesus takes the law of God seriously, so seriously that he paid the penalty for our disobedience so that we can be saved by sheer grace. So whether we're inclined to be religious Pharisees, trying to save ourselves. Or secular Sadducees saying, I'm okay, I don't need saving. Jesus warns us to guard against these creeping sins, these insidious sins in the teaching of these two groups. For they both lead to disaster and to the denial of the grace of God in the gospel. These two brief sections of Matthew 16, we see something of the pressures of Jesus' ministry. He was barely back in Galilee after being in the, in the Decapolis, the ten cities, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to confront him. And as he answered them, he was also attempting to train the twelve, who often did not understand what he was doing. That pressure took its toll on Jesus, and we know that for the very next verses, he gets in the boat and he goes again and heads up north to Caesarea Philippi for an important time of interaction with his disciples. But through it all, Jesus manages to teach us, and all who will read these accounts teach us some valuable lessons for our own faith. And I suggest these three this morning out of this strange little text. Don't put God on trial. He may try you, that's fine. You don't put him on trial. He does not have to answer to you. Learn to think like God thinks. Meditate on his word until you understand, until what God's doing makes perfect sense. Of course he would do that until you understand the times in which we live. And three, guard against creeping sin, creeping legalism, which is everywhere in the church, creeping secularism, which is everywhere in the world, Hold fast the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, which we often don't understand very well. And yet you continue to teach us and 
bring to light things that we would never have thought of if you hadn't put them in your word. So we thank you for that. We pray that we would learn to think like you think, that we would learn to walk in your ways, that we would learn, Lord, to be careful about the creeping, insidious attitudes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, both of which would deny the gospel. As we reflect on these things, Lord, bring them back to mind and maybe digest them and be changed by what your word says to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.